Remember that our spiritual life will not be complete unless we have experienced an inward baptism and transformation. Growth in inward purity and outward Christian effectiveness should follow this experience. But such growth can come only if we persist in seeking to know and follow the commands of Christ. Advice number 27 from the Ohio Yearly Meeting Book of Discipline. This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative Reading Presentation and Study of William Schuin's 1675 work entitled The True Christian's Faith and Experience. These sessions are meant for Wilburites, conservative friends, but are open to others as well. This is session number nine. Last time we went over chapters three and four. Three was on the true Christian's faith and experience concerning the Holy Spirit. And four was on the true Christian's faith and experience concerning the Holy Scriptures. I'm going to show a couple of things right now. This has come up in a couple of other Zoom sessions recently that I've been in, and I thought it'd be pertinent here to show these as well. I've often prefaced in the notes I sent to each of the sessions this quotation from an early Christian famous writer named Origen. He was Greek. He lived originally in Alexandria in Egypt, which was the second largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome, in a commentary on the Gospel of John, which was written sometime between 226 and 232 and later. He made this very interesting comment here that I think is very important in terms of what we were talking about last week. He said here, quote, I do not condemn the evangelists, that is, the gospel writers, if to serve their mystical view, they have in some way rearranged actual historical events in an order than that in which they occurred, so as to tell of what happened in one place as if it had happened in another or of what happened at a certain time, as if it had happened at another time, and to introduce into what was said in a certain way some variations of their own. For they propose to speak the truth both pneumatically, that is spiritually, and somatically, literally, in so far as possible. And where this was not possible, to prefer the pneumatic, the spiritual, to the somatic, the literal. They often preserve the pneumatic, that is, the spiritual truth, in what some might call a somatic, a literal falsehood. This is an amazing statement from 1800 years ago. I should mention that Origen, some of his writings were condemned later on after his life a couple of times. I think perhaps the church as it's, itself was going in a different direction becoming much more literal in their interpretations, as was seen in a school of Christian thinking that grew up a hundred years later after he lived. But this is a very interesting statement, and I think it's important to think of this in reading and having talked about what we did last week. Two other comments here. This is from Isaac Pennington, an early Quaker. It's in a letter he wrote in which he is speaking about reading the Bible, and he says, in the end, that is, the goal of all words is to bring men to the knowledge, to the experience of things beyond what words can utter. So learn of, learn from the Lord to make a right use of the scriptures, which is by esteeming them in their right place and prizing that above them, which is above them. That is the spirit of Christ. 
Finally, I don't have the quote here, but another early friend, Robert Barclay, in paraphrasing something he said, he said, basically, in reading a Bible passage, seek the spiritual signification, the spiritual meaning behind the words. Origen, in his time, saw there being sort of three levels of reading the Bible, a somatic level, a literal level, taking things literally, a second level, a psychic level, in which you were to sort of digest and understand the ethical or the moral meaning of that passage, and finally, the highest level, the spiritual, the mystical level, which was basically what he is talking about in this uh, excerpt I have here. Any comments on this before we go on to the next passage? I will do as I've been doing in the earlier sessions, and that is I will read and translate the passages into modern English as best as I can. A reminder, too, as we read these, that Quakers were under severe persecution at this time when this was written, especially by these titular Christians, these nominal Christians. Friends were very much opposed to the religious hypocrisy they saw in their time. This is chapter five. This is a fairly long chapter. I'm not sure we'll finish it today, but it's a very important passage, as uh, you'll see as we begin to read it. The true Christian's faith and experience concerning the doctrine of repentance, the teaching of repentance. I want to make one statement right at the very beginning. It's unfortunate that this word repentance today has a very different meaning than what it originally had in terms of the New Testament. And even an early Latin religious writer, Tertullian, commented that he did not think the translation of repentance into Latin was correct. It more had the sense that we have it today in terms of remorse, feeling regret, sorrow. This word did have that, but the more important meaning of this word was having a complete transformation of one's way of thinking, a complete change of mindset. That's what true repentance is and was. And that's why this chapter comes immediately after the chapters on God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and on the Bible. So this is at the very beginning of one's understanding of so much more that we will go through in the series. The true Christian believes and puts trust in the teachings, the doctrines and teachings of Christ and his apostles recorded in the Holy Scriptures, and that it is not only his duty, but his practice to obey them and live according to them. As first, the doctrine of repentance from dead works, dead actions, or a turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. This is the gate to the kingdom, or the first step towards Christianity. This is a very important thing he's saying here. This is the gate to the kingdom of God, or the very first step towards Christianity, to becoming a Christian. This is the door at which the true Christian enters. If he misses this way, they strive to enter in vain without repenting, without that transforming of themselves which is changing or turning away from evil to good, away from the way of death to the way of life, the way of eternal life from darkness itself to light, the light of Christ itself, away from the power and service of sin and Satan to the power and service of God and righteousness. This is the nature and effect of true repentance, this true transformation, 
And without this, no man has a true title in Christ, a true name of being a Christian or in Christianity. Let his profession of it be ever so high. For death reigned over all men from the fall of Adam until Moses, and all men have in it come short of the glory of God, as Paul says. And in that fallen nature are the children of wrath, dead in sins and trespasses. And God has concluded all in unbelief, in order that he might have mercy, compassion upon all. I want to make it clear here where it says he has concluded all in unbelief. It's not that God has made people that way but that he has allowed that to happen in order that he may then show compassion on all for those who truly repent. And now the call of God is to all men everywhere to repent, and none but those that answer this call find compassion, find mercy. This call of God is more universally inward and unmediated rather than outward and through some outward means. The which, if people slight, disregard, and neglect to obey, the outward instruments and means do not avail, do not help. I don't know if this is clear to you. The call of God, he uses the word here, call. When you see this word call in English, you need to remember that the word for church, the original Greek word, ekklesia, the root of that word is the word call, those who are called out of the world. There is a conversion, a turning away from the world, a turning to God, away from Satan to Christ. And this is call is meant, is given to all men, every person, everywhere to repent. These are very strong words he's using here, I understand, but I think it's such an important thing that he's saying about the real need for this transformation of one's mindset, of one's way of thinking, of, of how we perceive ourselves, the world, and God. I have a question about the former paragraph when he says that death reigned over all men from the fall of Adam till Moses. So under the law, death did not reign over men. It sounds like once Moses... Say that again, Karen. Uh, trying to understand the sentence. For death reigned over all men from the fall of Adam till Moses. I'm trying to remember where those words are from. That's Paul, I believe. Um, sorry, it's not coming to me at the moment. So under the law, under Moses, death wasn't reigning? We're talking about here spiritual death. Is right. that what you're understanding? Yeah, spiritual death. I thought that death reigned since the fall of Adam, and that was that. But it sounds like when God gave Moses the law, then death was no longer reigning, at least reading this sentence. I'm taking the sense of death here as to being the opposite of eternal life. In the sacred story of Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they no longer had that intimate union with God that they had before they disobeyed him. Right. To get the context, if anybody's interested, that comes from Romans five fourteen. but there's stuff before and after that. Go ahead and read that. It may be important here. This is starting at verse 12, and I'm using King James. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come." 
but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many may be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. I think I need to read another translation to understand. <laughs> that is hard. I think, though, what I was saying, I believe, is something of the sense that we are reading here in terms of that death, that death to eternal life, that death to union with God, that death to not entering into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that because of our sinning, as Adam himself and Eve had sinned. What I'm struggling with, Henry, what transition occurred before and after Moses? In other words, when you take away the Moses part of that and mention what you shared, it seems very understandable, but I'm still trying to grasp it in the context historically, maybe, and this may be my error, between pre-Moses and post-Moses time periods in history, in biblical history. He's bringing up an important point here in terms of the biblical word dispensation, a word used in the King James Version, and that is these stages, sort of evolutionary stages in understanding our relationship to God, and that Moses was a major step in terms of understanding God and obeying God. Of course, again and again, the Israelites often ended up not obeying God. But the latest dispensation is that of the New Covenant, the New Testament of Jesus, which supplants that of Moses, which in turn earlier supplanted earlier understandings before Moses. I think maybe it, what you're saying is clear. Maybe it's just that the passage from Paul is really confusing. It has to be. Yes, written. yes. I understand that, too. Thank you. I think maybe we should just move on. Henry, may I make one comment before you do? Go ahead. Um, in response to George, the thing that happened at Moses, as you might say, and you find it in Exodus and again in Jeremiah, the conditional statement that God says, I will be your God if yes. you obey my voice. So here is a transition point that comes about because of the coming of Moses and of the law. That's a very important point. Thanks, Ellis. Yes, if. You can almost hear that in this passage here. It's one of those if kinds of clauses. You will receive mercy after this true transformation that is necessary. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by a renewing, a renovation in your mind, in your mindset, in your way of thinking, various translations of that word, in order to be able to discern what is the good, the pleasing will of God. That comes first. You need to go through this transformation of your way of thinking, very basic way of thinking. You need a new heart and get rid of the old stony heart. He has concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. I wanted to comment on the initial question. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And part of the law was shedding of blood. So Jesus being the final sacrifice. You were asking about between Adam and Moses, there was no law concerning the shedding of blood or the forgiveness of sins. But then after Moses, there was. That brings up an important point here. Let me just check one word here. Yeah, one of the words for sacrifice. Basically, if we want to understand sacrifice better, take out the sense we immediately have of some physical understanding of sacrifice. 
I'm thinking of the Greek word hilasmos. Hilasmos is the means by which sins are forgiven. And it's that life, death, and resurrection, and following, obeying that spirit of Christ that we saw in Jesus, that is the means by which sins are forgiven. This is why Quakers pay so much attention to the inward understanding of sacrifice in that sense of the means by which sins are forgiven. If you use the word sacrifice, we then get very much into a much more common widespread understanding of that we are forgiven through the blood of Christ, which is true in a physical sense in terms of his death. But you really have to go beyond just that. It's obedience to that spirit of Christ that was 100% the spirit of the Messiah, the spirit of God that was in Jesus, that those around him really came eventually to see and understand, especially after the resurrection and Pentecost. This is a point that is a very difficult point to discuss with some Christians where they really are focusing so much on the outward, not understanding there's got to be an inward kind of response from you to what Jesus did and who he was and why he was there, why he came. Okay, let's continue. Now, the true Christian gives testimony that he believes and obeys the doctrine, the teaching of true repentance in the following manner. First, whereas his mind and heart, his consciousness, were running after and captivated with the sight of the eye, what the eye sees, and the lust, the cravings of the flesh, the body, and the pride of life, uh, what we see out there in one's life, that are in that world which lies in wickedness. Now, his mind and heart is not only stopped, but also turned away from them and weaned away from the delight and pleasure he had had in them. And not only so, but through the shining of the light in his heart, this inward shining of the inward light of Christ in his heart, in his consciousness, in his conscience, in his mind, he is made to see the exceeding sinfulness of them and to feel the weight and burden of them which, when he was dead in his sins and trespasses, he could not feel or be sensible of. But now, being made alive through the voice of God, through the voice of the Word of God, through the inward Spirit of Christ, which calls one to true repentance, to a true transformation of his way of thinking, his mind, he cries out with Paul, quote, O wretched man, who shall deliver me, etc. And this is the cry which the Lord is ready to hear and to answer with a manifestation of his love and power and with the joy of his salvation. I should say this is reminding me of the understanding of the day of visitation, that expression that's used so often among early friends, that day of examination, that day of inward examination, inward introspection, a day, again, think of day not as a one physical day, but a time, a specific time. And now his face is towards Zion, towards Mount Zion, towards Jerusalem, and his travel is towards the holy city, the travel towards the holy city has begun. 
And this true Christian right well knows right well that his repentance, his true repentance, his true transformation, or turning away from and out of the broad way of sin and Satan and setting his foot into the straight and narrow way was not by himself or effected in his own will and power, but rather through the virtue of the free gift of God, the grace of God, and operation of his free grace, and that he daily and momentarily every moment needs the divine assistance of him, of God, to lead, guide, and assist him in every step of his journey to its end, to its goal. Is this understood? We can't do this alone. We need God to help us. We need Christ within us to help us, the Spirit of the Messiah within us, that living Spirit of Christ. Recall that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told they could become gods by just eating that fruit. They weren't going to pay attention and obey God. God would have had them go in his way to that final goal. They already were there with him, but they were going to do it on their own. Any comments here before we go on? Well, I think that talks to uh, free will. Humans have free will. I mean, it seems to be destined. I don't know what uh, the future after that would have been completely different if they hadn't eaten of the forbidden fruit. There's something very interesting that Fox in his journal, <clears throat> journal says somewhere of these different levels or different states of being. And that because of what Jesus did, and because of our following him and obeying his living spirit within us, we can go beyond even that state that Adam and Eve were in, in the garden. And I thought that was always a very interesting point that he made there. Human beings can become more intimate with God than even angels, as it says elsewhere in the Bible. We seem so unfortunate in terms of our sinning and our fall from the grace of God, but we can end up at even a greater level in terms of entering into the kingdom of God, of obtaining, of inheriting eternal life, life of the ages, as it's also possible to translate. And now the true Christian is a living witness of the truth of Christ's saying when he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. When the dead, as we were saying earlier, talking about dead, when the spiritually dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, the Word of God, and they that hear it, listen to it, shall live, shall live eternally, shall have eternal life. This is the first distinguishing work of the powerful voice of God in the true hearing of it, the true listening to it. The world hears its convincing voice, but not regarding or obeying it, they are not made alive or converted by it. Nothing is able or sufficient or appointed by God to give repentance to life, to eternal life, except the hearing, the listening to this voice of the Son, the Son of God. He, man, has formerly or in times past heard many voices, quote, look here and look there, and he has made many repentances, changes, and turnings from one way and opinion to another. 
but until he heard and obeyed the voice of the Son of God, never knew that repentance, that true repentance, which is never to be changed, repented of. A lot of this is of what we're reading here. When I'm thinking of all the passages that he's quoting here in the New Testament, we're looking at a very inward understanding of these passages. And this is the true Christian when he's really listening to the word of God, the voice of the Son of God within him, helping him, wanting to help him, trying to help him to convert, change. And then secondly, then, this Christian has heard and obeyed this voice and has turned out from the broad way and begins to walk in the straight and narrow way and to no longer have fellowship with the unfruitful works, actions of darkness but rather reproves them. He then becomes a wonder, a byword, and a taunt to his former companions who think it strange that he does not run with them into the same excessive riot, riotous living, but he makes straight steps for his feet. He measures all his goings by the line of righteousness, which the goodness of God that leads to repentance has brought him to that straight line of righteousness, the straight way. Now he appears like an owl in the desert and like a pelican in the wilderness and like a sparrow upon the housetop. Now his great trials, temptations, and exercises begin both within and outside. Here he sees his enemies around him like bees when they swarm, which till now he had no sight or sense of. The strong man guarding his house, all his goods were at peace, and the house being dark and his eyes dim, did not perceive or discover the enemies of his soul that lodged in them, nor could he judge or discern the nature of the goods with which his house was furnished. That old deceiver, Satan, having power to transform himself like an angel of God, and to imitate the furnishings of his temple, the furnishings of his inward temple within him. But now he, the true Christian, having heard the voice of the Son of God and being made alive through his mighty power and the eye of his mind now opened and fastened upon it, then the devil rages, knowing he has but a short time and that his dispossession is growing near and the despoiling of his goods is at hand, unless he can by any means prevent it. But all the devil's endeavors were and are in vain against this true repentant, who, trusting in the goodness of the Lord, who at first led him to repentance, and relying upon the arm of God's power, opened his eye, which was blind, and unstopped his ear, which was deaf, and enlightened the understanding that was darkened, he in it is made able to stand and to resist him, the devil, in all his assaults, and to escape all his baits and snares, and to quench all his fiery darts, and to overcome him, Satan, in all his temptations, and to go right on in his way, pressing forward towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, where all the treasures of wisdom, of knowledge, and of glory are hidden, and laid up for those that love Christ's appearance and obey his low calling, which is for repentance. 
and no other others are in the way to know what the high calling of God in Christ Jesus is. Let their notions, professions, and confessions be ever so high. So it's a long paragraph here. And I understand what he's saying is that once you've started on this path, it's not going to be easy at first. Satan, the devil, evil spirits are going to be trying their hardest to get you off that path, that line of righteousness. I would say read this over a few times. Henry, this is the second time that Shuin has mentioned something about profession being ever so high. Can you expound on the meaning of that word high? How is it being used? How are we to understand that? This is the profession of those who are not true Christians. I think it's their loftiness of what they think they're saying and the words they may have all the the vocabulary of how they are perceiving what they think of as repentance and what is essential to becoming a true Christian on this beginning of the path, the path of righteousness, that straight and narrow line rather than deviating from it. But as one is really beginning to understand that this is the way to God, this is the high calling of God, I think that perhaps is what the reference is here the high calling of God versus the high profession of those who are not understanding what is being understood here. It's one thing talking about something, verbalizing, explaining it. It's another thing to really be experiencing it and going through it. That's my understanding. Let their notions, professions, and confessions be ever so high. I should mention, too, oftentimes you'll see that there are negatives here and I'm translating them as positives, and that's because in English of this time, the 17th century, double negatives were normal. I just will not use double negatives in my translation if I can help it. <laughs> the calling, that's the same root as in the word for church. Those who are part of those who have been called out of the world into this congregation of those who are really looking Zionward, towards Zion, towards the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, as we saw earlier in the paragraph before. Okay. The titular Christian, the Christian in the name only, he professes, he confesses that he believes the doctrines and teachings of Christ and his apostles, and first, this of repentance. But how does he demonstrate his faith? Is his mind turned from darkness and its way to the light and its way, from the power of Satan and its works, his works, to the power of God and its works? The <clears throat> is he made alive, is he quickened and made alive through the listening, to the hearing and listening to the voice of the Son of God? Has he come out of the grave of sin and sea of corruption? Does he feel the weight and burden of it? Has sin become something exceedingly sinful to him? Is a cry raised in his soul to the Lord or a full deliverance and redemption, that is, liberation from the servitude, from serving sin and Satan? Does he have a true sense and sight of the nature and tendency of sinning? Is his mind truly turned to the appearance of God in Christ within, within us? 
who is to destroy and make an end of sin and finish transgression and the author of sin and transgression and bring in everlasting righteousness instead of that? Does the titular Christian bring forth fruits appropriate for this transformation? Does he show through them that he has turned from the service of sin and Satan to the service of God and righteousness? Has he turned out of the broad way? Does he walk in the straight way and make straight steps for his feet? And are his feet pulled out of the mire and clay? And are they set upon the rock? And are all his goings about guided by the line of righteousness, straight line? And is he enabled by the powerful voice and arm of the Son of God to stand upright on his feet in the midst, in the middle of all his enemies, and by it to travel on in the way of holiness towards the holy city in heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the saints' solemnity? These things accompany true repentance. Therefore, let the titular, the nominal Christian, turn the eye of his mind inward and commune with his own heart and be still, be silent, and consult with God's witness within, and examine and answer these things, and see and test whether he has not deceived himself with a false profession of being a Christian and a feigned, a fake repentance in which he confesses daily, but does not abandon. And so he does not find mercy, compassion, deceiving his own soul by daily sinning and an imaginary repentance, being subject to call and account a changing and turning from one fort of the devil's service to another, from self-sinning, from egotistical sinning and debauchery to self-righteousness, egotistical righteousness, from one opinion to another, and from one sort and fashion of invented worship to another. A repentance, though in it the old man with his deeds appears prevalent, and the earthly image is born, and the nature and ground of sin and transgression remain unshaken by the voice and power of the Son of God, who calls and leads everyone that hear, that listen, and obey to true repentance. Comments? This sounds very uh, black and white to me. Either you're a sinner with the devil or you're not. I think there are lots of uh, gray areas in between. It's important to remember Shu himself earlier in this work says that he was in this situation at one time, that he was a titular Christian and that he went through his own transformation. I would be surprised if someone quickly resolves all of the issues that he talks about here within oneself, unless one is already somewhere on that pathway, on that straight and narrow way already. It's important. It's a path. It's not, it's not a destination. It's a path which we traverse over time, leaving behind more and more of the worldly things. Early friends never minced their words. The stakes were too high in terms of their real understanding of eternal life, the kingdom of God, and the need to work towards entering and being in that kingdom and obtaining that eternal life, even before one's physical death, if not after. 
Some people think that repentance is just turning away from sin, but it also must include a turning towards Christ because Christ has the means to, for that transformation of heart to make it go deep and make it go lasting. Another way of looking at this is in early Christianity, they often talked about rest, obtaining rest with a capital R, which basically would have been a translation, anaposis, uh, a translation of the Hebrew word Sabbath, the day of Sabbath, the day of rest. That's what Sabbath means. It's eternal rest, rest with God, that obtaining and listening and being in that peace that surpasses all understanding, as it says in John. And this is, I think, why early friends were so intense in going out and preaching and, and really making known to people what they had understood, what they had come to understand about the nature of reality, spiritual reality and physical reality. They really needed to convert all these nominal Christians and non-Christians to understand the importance of this whole need for this true repentance, this true transformation of their way of thinking, of their actions, of their words. And they were able to actually do this to tens of thousands of people. The sad thing is it's so hard to train, to teach this from one generation to the next. Watching one's parents and seeing how they live and act and what they speak, how they speak, that really is so important. I just think this has been one of the weaknesses of Quakers historically is, is training one generation with what that earlier generation knew. Of course, the world is so powerful. All the ways of the world are constantly bombarding this true faith. And of course, Satan never stops trying to break down and destroy anything that really is from God. Let me see if we have much more to go here, because I think we're almost at the end of this. Yes, we are. Okay, we'll finish this today. I think the goal, too, is to have the heart of God. And that's not something that we can produce in ourselves. But when we find something within us that's not aligned with the perfect love of God, we can bring it immediately to God and then rest in one sense until he transforms our heart. And we rest in abiding in focusing on him until he does and enjoying his supply of peace and joy and love. Again, it's not our ability to change ourselves. It's his ability to transform our hearts to be like his. We'll be talking about this, Chad, in the next chapter, actually. And that is how one goes about working in this pathway, this path to Zion, to God, through repentance. We'll be talking about this next week, I believe. This is the last paragraph here. Until this voice of the Lord be heard, listen to, and this power felt and witness to work and operate in the inward man, the beast, that is Satan, receives no deadly wound, the strength of sin is not abated, and the strongholds of imagination continue unbroken, and so repentance in this state is only talked of in vain by all the nominal Christians upon the face of the earth who do not experience these things wrought, done, and effected in them and for them. And they are wholly ignorant of that true repentance, which is never to be repented of, and of that joy that is in heaven over one sinner that repents. 
more than over 99 just righteous persons who do not need repentance. I forget who spoke earlier. Was that Nancy about it's not black and white? I think it's important here to think of this in black and white terms, but understand that perhaps all of us started off as nominal Christians. Let's just make that assumption. Then we know in reading and understanding how Schuman is preaching to us today in what he wrote, he is ministering to us. This gives us a sense, an idea of where we need to go and what we need to do. I don't think we should feel down or depressed or this is impossible. That's something an, that's something a, a titular Christian would think. But look positively at this, that he's giving us the ways to do it, as we'll find out next week, too. This is what was being preached among those earliest of Christians and the earliest of Quakers. Any, any last comments, questions? Isaac Pennington has an interesting statement. I cannot quote it. Uh, it's, it's something that Lewis Benson quotes in some of his works. I could find it, but I don't have it in my fingertips. Anyway, the, the comment is that when the true believer responds in obedience, the power never fails the faith. In other words, when the call of God comes and we step out in obedience to that call, we are given the power to do what we are called to do. And the important thing, thanks for bringing that up, Alice, is I think in other Christian denominations, they don't even speak about this power to overcome Satan. I mean, they may in, in some sense, but not how early friends really felt that this is a true power and that one should be aware of it, that God is there to help us. I mean, that's what the grace is all about. This is what we need to go out and preach. Nancy D., I agree. It does feel black and white. I think Conrad kind of helped draw us back to the concept of a journey. I'm thinking of Jesus' words, be perfect even as I am perfect. And yet that word perfect for us today means maturing or growing, willing to self-evaluate. As Henry said, we haven't arrived. It is a process and it is easy to feel discouraged, I think, but it's a process. And we do as much as, and the Lord gives us as much as we're able to respond to. I'm reminded of Barclay, who in speaking of holiness and this kind of relationship with the Lord, said, the Lord calls us to it. It has to be possible. And he goes on to say, but I confess I haven't attained it. <laughs> I think that kind of humility is a very hallmark of somebody who is on that path of true Christianity. There's one other thing, and I'll make it fast. In listening to last week's, because I've been preparing the podcast for publication, you folks really struggled with the concept of Trinity or the oneness of God, and we should. I love what Nancy said when she said that making it a Trinity becomes almost like three separate individuals that have no mingling with each other. And fundamental is that concept that God is one that Father, Son, Spirit are divinely one in a way that we'll never get, and that's okay. Whenever we get to a point that we have so totally and clearly defined God, we don't have God anymore. We have something we've created. We've made our own God, something that we can wrap our arms around. Thanks, Ken. Um, I'm just looking at next week, the true Christian's faith and experience concerning mortification, warfare, self-denial, and a dying daily. 
those are heavy words right now, but they'll be clearer hopefully next week when we go through that chapter, chapter six. Try to think of what we've talked about today in a positive way of having learned something. Again, God is not going to give us commands to be something that is impossible. With his help, something is possible. Be perfect, be holy, for I am holy. With God's grace and with our obeying and listening and doing, this may be hard at first and may be hard at other times, but the reward is great. And I think that peace that surpasses understanding is a peace to obtain. Okay, anything else this evening? All right, well, thank you all and blessings to you all. Thanks, Henry. You also. Thank you, Henry. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Do that too. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction is advice number 27 from the Ohio Yearly Meeting Book of Discipline. The discipline can be found on our website, ohioyearlymeeting.org. On that website, first select Educational Media, then select Documents. This will bring up a page containing a link to our Book of Discipline. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.